Yes, hello, it's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. Today, we are rejoined for his second appearance, the multi-talented Alan Green, a British-born pianist, composer, author, educator, and scholar of the Shakespeare authorship mystery. Alan served as the musical director for Davy Jones of the Monkees and co-authored two best-selling books with him. In 2004, Alan was introduced to the Shakespeare authorship mystery, a historical question surrounding the identity of the author behind the works attributed to William Shakespeare. This sparked a new passion in Alan, leading him to create a variety of original works on the subject. And he is also the host of a brand new captivating show on Gaia that summarizes all of his work on the Shakespeare mystery called Shakespeare Decoded which explores the mathematical codes and alchemical clues hidden within the works of Shakespeare. This series reveals Shakespeare's connections with Freemasonry, Rosicrucians, and royal families, and takes viewers on a journey into a hidden world of espionage and esoterica. Alan was also my next-door neighbor in Los Angeles for many years, and we were both working on material related to Dr. John Dee without realizing it. It was uh, hilarious when we discovered that. So before we dive into our discussion with Alan, let's talk about an exciting opportunity for those of you interested in tarot. The Magic of Tarot is the brand new comprehensive course offered by Magic.me, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. Guided by legendary author Lon Milo Duquette, this course will help you master the Thoth Tarot, venture into the world of Kabbalah, and learn about the spirits within the cards, including a guided meditation journey through all 22 major tarot trumps. But you've heard me talking about this course already, so enough from me. Reviews are starting to come back from students, and here's what a few that have already completed the course have had to say about it. James M. shared, Wow, I've always loved Jason's work with Magic.me. This course was perfect for not only being introduced to tarot, but showing the Kabbalistic correspondences that are already a part of us. I will forever use the material as reference for not only tarot, but all esoteric exploration. Many thanks to Jason and Lon for this truly wonderful opportunity. Thank you, James. And musician Aaron M. also chimed in. This class is like a really great record, newly released by a classic artist, but produced by a modern contemporary who is also a master in the same genre. Like when Jack White recorded Wanda Jackson and the result was pure magic. Thank you, Aaron, for that very, very kind review. So why wait? Embark on your journey today with The Magic of Tarot. You can see it at tarot.magic.me. That's T-A-R-O-T dot M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Tarot.magic.me. All right, I will see you in class. And now let's welcome our esteemed guest, Alan Green. Welcome back to the podcast, Alan. It's been a long time, and uh, it's I'm I'm excited to talk to you. We haven't talked in a long time, unfortunately, but uh, here we are. You're now a rock star. You're on. You have a new Gaia series that you've launched. So maybe uh, <laughs> uh -huh. and and now you have long hair and look like Kenny Loggins, which is hilarious, uh, and looks very good. Oh yeah, who's that? 
Yeah. So, and I'm going to start singing country music. So there you go. Oh, well, perfect. Um, you'll have to you'll have to visit in Austin then, uh, since I live here now, and it's <laughs> it's known for the country music. <laughs> so, um, yeah. why don't we just start off for for people who didn't listen to the earlier episode, which you can everyone can go back and listen to it, but um, maybe just talk a little bit about yourself, your the focus of your work, and about the new show. Sure. Um, I can't even remember what we talked about in the first in the, in the first time I was on your show, but I guess it was uh, just a lot of uh, background. Most interesting part was the fact that we we lived about five or six feet from each other. Yes, <laughs> years ago, and so uh, that was a cool thing. Uh, I'll, uh, because you know, if two people are writing books about John D on the planet and they're both literally in the same apartment building and don't realize it <laughs> kind of weird isn't it it's a, it's a little odd it's a little odd it, it was really really interesting very very funny anyway yeah. for those of you who don't know go back check the other the other podcast that, that uh, i did with jason um i've been, i'm my name is Alan Green. I have a website that is to be or not to be dot org, uh, which is really the place for uh, getting all the information about what I'm doing. I've been obsessed with uh, pursuing the Shakespeare authorship mystery for now 19 years. Uh, and all of that time, I was sort of doing it really just as a passion project. But and obviously, I would have liked to think that it was going to find its audience eventually. But, you know, after a while, <laughs> maybe around about the 12-year mark, I started thinking, well, it's it doesn't matter. It's just I'm going so, so, so deep into it and into all these codes that it will find its audience eventually. And I began to not care and really do it just for a, a, a the pure reason of wanting to get that truth documented so that the world would know. Um, but it seems that um, the gods have shone on this project and, and finally it's it's finding an audience, which is very gratifying. So I have a, I have a Gaia series now uh, on Gaia TV called Shakespeare Decoded. And if you go to my website, to be or not to be.org, which is, by the way, words, I always stress, it's not letters like a Prince song. It's words the way he would have wrote it. To be or not to be. Uh, the first thing you'll see is a button there to go to, to see the guy I show. And if you click on that, there's a seven-day free trial. And so you can go and binge them all and then... Uh, and then get off Gaia if you wanted to. But and you can also watch uh, the shows they have with me on it when when you're on it. <laughs> I was just going to say that, Jason. I wasn't going to let that go by. Okay. All right. Or you could stay on. It's all the more reason. And see your all the more reason you could stay on and see your favorite host, Jason Louvre, <laughs> Culture, and check out his appearances on Gaia. Lots of good stuff on Gaia. But a lot of other good stuff on there, a lot of really, really interesting stuff that is uh, probably attuned to your audience too. Definitely. So if you go on there and click on that, please, please see that. And that's how you can see, just get an overview of uh, not at all what I've done in 19 years, obviously, because it was overwhelming for the producers of Gaia to come to me and say, um, we'd like you to synopsize your 19 years work into seven half hour episodes. 
Yeah. And after I got off the floor and said, huh? No, it's, that's not even possible. It's not. But it's important, of course, to try to synopsize into one particular focus so that people get it. And to me, the most important thing to try to convey was and still is no matter how much we all may believe, we understand that Shakespeare is very important. I mean, obviously, we know that. We don't need to be taught that. But really, 99.99% of people are not terribly interested in Shakespeare. That's well, now, now Shakespeare is also getting canceled out of literature departments. Um, so they're erasing him Which from the curriculum. Just shocking, yeah. isn't it? So yeah, it's horrible. Now, the timing is good because I, so I, I mean, literally, that's the first uphill climb that I have always considered it's my job to try to get past is, oh, yeah, I know it's great. I know he's supposedly the greatest writer ever. I might go see one play in my lifetime. Maybe I'll see Midsummer Night's Dream or whatever, you know. But in terms of the general audience, now he has millions and millions of fans, obviously. There are millions of people who are, adore Shakespeare and would go to the ends of the the earth to find out more about him. But I'm talking about real, real viral, you know, what we're trying to do with whatever we're trying to get out these days with our passion projects. We want it to reach millions and millions of people online. Uh, that's an uphill climb. So the first thing I say, the very first thing I say in episode one is literally I come out um, through a red curtain, walk to the camera with a, a mask over my face, and I say, I start with, to be or not to be, that is what you're expecting, right? Well, we'll have none of that here. And I throw the mask away, and I say, there'll be no me thinketh, no wherefore art thou, and definitely no men in tights. This <laughs> is about the real Shakespeare, and it's a shock, man, because it is, because all, it's, I always equate it to that moment of going from black and white in Wizard of Oz to suddenly widescreen, technical, you're going to know about a side of Shakespeare that no one has really, truly ever suspected. It's a mind-boggling uh, joyride, really, of, of, of discovery after discovery after discovery. And that he was working with this much maligned and misunderstood character that Jason knows an awful lot about because of his wonderful work with the amazing Dr. John Dee. And the funny thing is when we were literally living five or six feet across the corridor from each other, we were both writing books, but from different perspectives. And he didn't know the side that I was writing from. And I only tangentially knew the side that he was writing from. I knew obviously about all of the, the holy table, the Enochian tables and, and the angel communications. But I hadn't delved deeply into that other than to find out that the angels had delivered to the a, a reformed table, an alternate version, which is the only one you can get down to the root of solving the Shakespeare mystery. It's a code to help you solve the Shakespeare mystery. So that's it. It's codes. It's like a modern day Da Vinci code, except it's absolutely real. Mm -hmm. It's not made up Dan Brown codes, which are all clever, et cetera. But you know, it's, it, this, is, this is a story of something that was really, truly, truly happening. And it had a reason for the cover-up, many reasons for the cover-up. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's everything. I mean, it is joyful. There's a lot of, lot of humor in the codes. Absolutely mind-boggling. 
but uh, there's a royal scandal, of course, behind the whole thing as well. Yeah. So I think that in our first episode, we talked about the Shakespeare codes. We talked about D. We talked about the mathematical constants in the Great Pyramid, and you wove it all together. I'm curious. Um, have you tried using AI on any of these codes? No. That might be interesting. I've thought about doing that with with John with the Anuki and stuff, but I haven't I haven't got to that. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I just tuned into an AI show the other day by my dear friend Craig Marshall, who used to be Brother Mitrananda in Self Realization Fellowship. He was a a monk in the in Yogananda's order of monastics for thirty five years, and then he left the order and is now a, a really go getting sort of uh, empowerment master. Uh, business entrepreneur, and he's very interested and involved in AI. And when I began to he hear him talk about it on this show, just about a week ago, I thought about that. I thought, wow, I wonder if I could ask AI to, because I am I'm always, always, always going into an, it, it never ends. First of all, mm. there are always more and more and more and more and more and more codes. And why would that be? It would be because they clearly wanted this to get out and find its way into the future at a time when it would be safe for the information to come out. And if there were only a few, that would diminish the possibility of them being found. And since there are many, 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 um, they all support and corroborate each other. And then they increase the validity because after a while, it's easy to downplay. And, and of course, the, the powers that be the Stratfordians, particularly, there was over the people who believed the man was the man born Shakespeare in Stratford, and the person we were always told in school is the is the true or is the you know you use the word true author was the author. Um, they just they don't want the truth to 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 come out that it's some someone else, and so the idea that. Yeah, I think we about so many codes. Then that becomes impossible to refute. It's like, well, two or three, uh, Alan, you're making it up. If there's a hundred, it becomes clear. Yeah, I think we talked on the on the first show, um, and I'll stop. I'll stop referring to it because this is the show now. Um, but you had said Jake. something. <laughs> yeah, you had said something to the effect that if the real identity of Shakespeare. Uh, which you had worked out from the codes was known that would be a huge blow to the Shakespeare tourism industry and 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 so forth, or the Shakespeare industry. You know, however, yeah, however people are making money from it. In, yeah, on one level, that would be the first assumption, and that is the assumption that the Stratfordians make. As to, that's why they are so virulently against anybody coming up with codes. I mean, I'm not by any means the first person to 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 suggest that. Right? There were. 150 years ago, the, Bacon, the Baconians were very, very, very avidly saying there are codes. Then there was the Oxfordians, there have been the Molovians and the Derbyites. And there's a, so, I mean, it's gone on and on for such a long time because it's clear. Most people that look at it with a rational viewpoint say that this cannot be the untrained, uneducated, untraveled grain dealer from Stratford who just has access, miraculous access to all of this amazing knowledge, let alone the codes. Uh, you know, he seems to know everything about everything. So it's it's not it's not a new thing to try to look for code, but 
I have done one thing that no one else has done, and that's 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 my my way of getting in and saying, look at this, because you know, finally there is actual physical evidence. And that one thing that I did, and again, I won't harp on it because I think we covered it in the first episode. However, just to catch you up to speed, the codes, once they are thoroughly understood, are very, very clear. They're simply saying, I've put the answer inside the Holy of Holies altar stone in the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-on-Avon, where the fake Shakespeare is buried. So there's his gravestone there, and there's his monument on the wall, and about 10 feet behind there, there's the Holy of Holies altar stone, and the codes say, it's in there. And so I had to go on a long journey to try to, how am I going to get into that altar stone and find out what's there? It's a three-ton marble piece of rock, nine foot by three feet by a couple of feet deep, you know, held in place as the altar stone. It's got 24-hour CCTV cameras, and it's got a forensic system that sprays you with a chemical if you get too near. So, And it's the, one of the most popular tourist attractions in England. So how am I going to get there? Yeah, and well, had, you managed I, to, though. I managed to by literally ingratiating myself into the people at Stratford. I did six trips there over four years. I helped them a lot in terms of trying to help them raise money for various uh, you know, things that they needed, celestial windows, various things that they needed help with. And so gradually they got to trust me and like me. And, and then I was able to photograph and then film. And then gradually, eventually I was a, allowed to do a, a show, an actual presentation of my musical in the chancel with a congregation there. Um, and uh, it was that that allowed me to then put up a banner advertising the musical in front of the altar so that it hid the altar from view. And at the end of the concert, I said, let's turn all the lights off and do this last number by candlelight. We did it by candlelight. That defeated the CCTV cameras. The forensic system was already defeated because I placed the piano right next to the gravestone and they couldn't risk staining the Steinway. And so everything was all set and I had a team behind there radar scanning it and filming it in night vision. And the result is on my website. You can just go to the website and see it or go to Gaia and see it in more detail because I've got an actual replica of the, the altar there on Gaia. But the bottom line is, instead of having a tiny hole in it that all consecrated altar stones have to have, which is like about the size of a child's shoebox, it's 250 times that size. There's a hole, huge, huge, huge. And you can see within it, different densities of things that are inside that hole. Hmm. So we have proof, uh, and that's the one thing that at least makes this theory stand out above all others, is hmm. that there is physical proof. So the game is to try to get the church to open that altar. Did they, when they found out that you had, you had scanned it like that, were they upset? Well, you know, uh, they haven't even contacted me. I mean, hmm. I don't know when they would have found out, because of course I did not tell them. <laughs> I had to do it covertly. And then I did a second trip there with the, once I had got the results of the scan, I went there a second time and did a talk in the church uh, to an invited audience and with the vicar there, the Reverend Gorick. And I was actually telling them that the codes say there's something in this Holy of Holies altar stone. Wouldn't that be wonderful for you? 
you could, I mean, my goodness, shall we scan it? I'd already done it, knowing that they wouldn't give me permission, but I'm, I'm asking them now, shall we scan it? Because if you scan this, uh, I think you'll find that there's something there. And then, you know what you can do with that? You can open it up and take it out. And, you know, the, the, the trap is that they believe there's no possibility that it could ever be anybody else but their man. Right. Mm -hmm. If you ask them, is there any possibility that it could be Edward de Vere, seventeenth Earl of Oxford, or Francis Bacon, or Marlowe, or the Queen, or you know the group theories, any of that? They they answer quite directly. Absolutely not. No chance at all. Anybody? I mean, I'm not. I'm not putting on a funny voice here. This is Stanley Wells. I've got him on video telling me that there is no chance. So in that case, then there's no chance. So let's go and open it because this would, in effect, end that gloomy, dark cloud that has hung over your story for the last almost 200 years. You could finally kiss goodbye to that and say, look, we've proven that there's something in here and obviously it must prove your guy. Ah, uh, yeah, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> and when, by refusing to do it, therein you understand that they do have this secret fear that, ooh, uh, better not do that just in case. So they do doubt that their man is the real man, but I had to sort of trap them into that. And so consequently, when I offered it to them, they refused vehemently, and I took it all the way to the highest possible authority because the vicar punted and said, well, I can't give you permission to scan the altar. I said, I'll do it. For, I will do it. I'll pay for it. I'll, I'll do the whole thing. I'll do it with you. We'll film it. We'll, oh, no, no, we can't do that. Asked the congregation. The congregation said, literally one of the members in the congregation said, you know, we all kinds of people come here and tell us that they found a, a solution, you know, but, you know, it sort of spoils the mystery, doesn't it? We don't really <laughs> want to know the, a solution because that somehow takes away the faith. Oh, no. I said, yes, I, un I understand it would, yeah. So, you know, they don't want it to happen. So I went to the actual, the, the Archbishop of, of Coventry. Sorry, to accurate, the Bishop of Coventry. He's not the Archbishop. He has now become the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was the Bishop of, Con of Coventry, and I took it to him. And I gave him a long presentation. I said, imagine, you know, you, you, you can take this out of the altar. You can slap it on a wall. You can build a museum right next to your church. I mean, I've been helping you raise money for the celestial windows. You needed 60,000 pounds, right? We raised money for that. We did this. We did that. You're always going cap in hand looking for money. What could you charge for this thing, whatever it is? If you find one page of Hamlet, hmm. the background to this is, for those who don't know, there is nothing. Shakespeare left zero paper trail. There are no manuscripts. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. So, until now? Until this very moment. Um, so... Well, cat, okay, all right. Well, it's one of the things I... Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, a, there's a lot to grok. I understand. So anyway, it's in the guy. In, right in the guy. At the first, I said, "This is. This is. You know. Do you know? Do you realize that here are the things that we have been taught, and we were never told the following. So if so, since you didn't know it, Jason, and your people, your your audience don't know it, I'll just give you the, the elevator pitch mm -hmm. on that. Not a manuscript has ever been found of anything in 
his original hand. When they did the, uh, the, the author does the manuscript, and then a copyist does what's called foul papers, and those are given out to the actors, and then they do the play. And even the actors themselves don't have a whole script. They have their lines. And they all stand in a circle, and they, then somebody directs it, presumably the author, right? And they're called foul papers. So the foul papers exist, and that's how we know what the plays are, obviously. And then they get printed, ultimately. But the original, the original work, not a manuscript has ever been found of a play, a poem, a sonnet, anything. Hmm. Not a letter, the greatest writer in the history of literature never wrote a letter to anyone. And, you know, he's the most sought after individual besides Jesus Christ. I mean, there has been a army of people trying to find anything, scouring libraries, attics, basements, museum shelves, all everywhere to find something, something in 400 years, nothing has hmm. ever, ever been found. Wow. There's no pages, not a page, not a line, not a word in his own hand. All we have are six shaky signatures, all spelled differently, all look like they were written by somebody who has the palsy, who cannot write, and, and even uh, handwriting experts cannot agree they were all written by the same person. Hmm. So that's all we have. Add to that, tell me if you've ever heard this. I mean, this is all... This is not my findings. This is Mark Twain. Mark Twain wrote a book in called Is Shakespeare Dead? in which he very, very beautifully uh, summed it all up. He said, you know, <laughs> no one ever saw him. Hmm. He has, the, he has the, the most successful 25-year career in London in the playhouses and in the publishing houses, and it would be like him being the, a cross between J.K. Rowling, uh, Spielberg, and Tom Cruise. Yeah. All rolled into one, and no one ever saw him. No one ever, no contemporary ever said, I bumped into Bill last night at the Mermaid, and he was writing out a, a, a draft of Macbeth. No one. It's interesting to c contrast that with John Dee also, who everyone saw and left behind huge amounts of written documentation. Like just gigantic yes. amount, even though some of it was burned and lost, there's still ton so much in in his yes. own handwriting. So, the, so those those things are what turned me on to this in the first place. I mean, in other words, okay, there are no manuscripts. That's that's just seems impossible. How can they all disappear? There are no records of him ever doing any work or getting paid for doing any work, like others were in the Henslow diaries of of Marlowe and Kidd and Johnson and Lily, and they're all you know. Oh, I got two pounds for doing such and such. There's no record. Plus, he was never seen. Plus, as far as we know, he had no education, the man from Stratford, and plus he had never ever was traveled anywhere. So how does he know? Half the plays are written in Italy. He knows the, the geography and the idiomatic language and the customs like the back of his hand. It's just not possible that it's the man that it's been pinned on. So why was that done and that's what got me interested in it in the, in the first place so because of all that you've got stratford really really don't if as i said to the the bishop i said look the, you know there's nothing in contrast to all the other great writers or musicians or philosophers really there's something this man has nothing in fact all the other writers of the time uh 25 or so it's been documented that there's paper trails for everybody, everybody. You can trace them. Oh, yeah, that's 
Yeah. Wasn't there, there's also like, even I think there's a story about Christopher Marlowe getting stabbed in the eye in a bar or something like that. So he was out and about in uh, in society and, and left behind stories of what he was up to. And that would have been Shakespeare's clearest contemporary. It would have been his clearest contemporary. And, and that indeed, let's stick a pin in that for a moment and come back to that. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll get off on another trail. But that's a very, very interesting aspect of it. Yes. The fact that he was murdered, supposedly stabbed in the eye, in uh, in a in a, a, a it's called a room in Deptford, mm. but so the point is this though. To contrast, what would something be worth? You know, in other words, this is the great Shakespeare. We have nothing. If you found literally one page that was provably in his hand. They, they do a lot of juggling of things about hand D in some other work that is supposedly his, but they have nothing to judge it against. And so it's all speculation on part of the Stratfordians. But the point is, if they had something, it would be priceless and they could slap it up on a museum wall, charge whatever they wanted. Mm -hmm. The world flocked. Yeah, it would be see. like the Mona, going to see the Mona Lisa. It would. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because let's take that as an example. Da Vinci painted roughly 18 or 19 paintings that we know of. So it, there's no scarcity of his paintings and his other drawings and works, et cetera, et cetera, right? So a few years ago, what happened? Uh, a new painting came to light, Salvatore Mundi. Yeah, I put it in the John Dee book. It's a wonderful story because it was bought in a, in a garage maybe 80 years ago. Someone saw it somewhere and bought it for 10 pounds, 12 pounds or something. And then the interest grew that maybe it was a bit more valuable and somebody bought it off of him for about $100,000. And eventually it got into the hands of the conservators at, at, who really knew what they were de dealing with. And it was re, uh, it was well, to a large degree, it was examined deeply for, for a few years and repainted where the paint was missing, et cetera, et cetera. And restored is the word I'm searching for. It sold at auction for uh, Christie's uh, four years ago. $450 million. Yeah. <laughs> and that, I mean, one painting that, that is not a rarity in, in terms of the, the corpus of da Vinci. One painting, 450. So if you found Hamlet, if you found any of the plays, if you found the sonnets, when nothing is in existence, God forbid they would even think of selling it to, because that painting was bought by um, MSB, right? Mohammed bin Salman, the guy who uh, brutally uh, ordered the murder of <clears throat> Ashogi. <clears throat> so the Saudis have it. But 450 plus 50 to the to Christie's, so it literally sold for, for half a billion dollars. So, in other words, you, your 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 financial worries would be over. <laughs> and even with yeah, half a billion dollars is a good day's pay by anyone's a, by anyone's con conception. So why won't you open the altar? Oh, and here's what here's what the the bishop said to me after I'd given him this whole presentation and and shown him how much money they could make. Just money, you know, like just the money part of it. And and there's no doubt it's him. There's no, we're not going to come up with anything else. Could it be anybody else? No, it can't be anybody else. But we're not going to do it. Oh, okay. Why? And he said, I would have to take it to a higher authority. Well, there are only two higher authorities at the time. One was the queen and the other was God. And neither got back to him, apparently. So... 
And I never heard anything. So your question initially that, that brew, that bred all that was, you know, um, are they upset with you now that they know you scanned it? You know, because obviously they know now because it's on my website and it's on the Gaia show, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, I haven't heard anything. And hmm. it's, it's not likely I will. Why would I? Because as far as they're concerned, they don't have to do a thing to keep the status quo. They just keep the money rolling in. They have a couple of million visitors a year who come to Stratford. They sell mugs to mugs. And they come to the church and they pay four pounds to come in and see Shakespeare's grave. The, the vicar said to me, he said, I'm embarrassed at the fact that we even have to charge money. He said, it's disgusting. Um, but we, we do, we charge money for them to go and see the grave because it's inside the actual chancel. Well, in all of that time, you know, nothing's going to shift until there is tremendous pressure on the church to open it. And the, the only way that that pressure is going to come about is, is when this story becomes viral. Mm. And so I have a link in my website where you can vote. It's just called vote here. Vote your conscience. Do you, shall we, do you want the altar to be opened? And it says, yes, I want to find out what Shakespeare left for us. Or B, no, let's not open it. Let's leave it another 400 years. <laughs> in other words, you know, those are the two choices. And of course, 15,000 people or so have voted yes, and about 1% of, of those have, have said no, which is fairly typical. And But that's not going to shift the barometer because that's nothing compared to virality these days. We need millions. Mm -hmm. But as we all know, as the story progresses and it takes hold, it's not hard to get a million. And then once you have a million, it's not hard to have half a billion. It's just the nature of the exponential mathematics of it. And so that has been my uh, my thrust so far. And so obviously, hopefully, the Gaia show brings much more attention to that. And once we have, uh, you know, several hundred million people voting to open the altar, then Oprah will be there with a mic in their face saying, do you know, half a billion people worldwide want to open your altar. What are you going to do about it? And by then, it will be too late for them to do anything about it. In other words, they can't really go behind the scenes and open the altar themselves and take whatever's there just in case it's, it's somebody else, in which case they would hide it. Or if it was their man, they'd say, oh, well, here we've got the proof. Hmm. It's not going to happen because uh, the altar is heavily concreted into the floor and the back wall, and they'd have to invent something. They'd have to you know, say, oh, there's a gas leak. We have to close the church for a couple of weeks. Well, this, would make a, this would make a great heist movie. And uh, that... It makes me think also, you mentioned you've been on some some new adventures, which I really want to hear about. You mentioned you went to Egypt uh, in 2021 and that I have not, I don't think you've caught me up on that. So I'm curious what that, what that adventure was. Yes. Um, so um, I went on this, the last, I've done four trips to Egypt. And the reason I do those trips to Egypt is because Again, I told you at the beginning, astounding though it is, when it, when this Shakespeare story goes into Technicolor, it's like, what? He's he's left, John D. left code on the cover of the sonnets. You can see a video on, on my YouTube channel about that. Let's just look up sonnets. And it, all you do is connect the dots, connect the dots of the punctuation on the cover of the Shakespeare sonnets, and, it, it show, and they connect into 
six perfect right angle triangles with a circle going through all the outer points. It's absolute perfection. Why would that be hidden on the cover of a book of poetry? You know, you can't see it. You have to understand that, oh, I think I'll just connect with these punctuation marks. And suddenly it's there. And the reason is each of the triangles, when you calculate the ratios, they all have a common hypotenuse, but when you calculate the ratios of the two sides, they are each a mathematical constant, such as pi or phi, the golden ratio, which were known then, but there are also five of them which were not even known then, such as Euler's number and the Euler-Mascheroni constant and Trebonacci constant, oh, just things that they should have no idea about, and yet they're there. And then beyond that, there are two lines that are pointing precisely to the geographic coordinates of the Great Pyramid. So he's telling us to look at the Great Pyramid. And so I started doing trips to Egypt to see what, why is he pointing us to the Great Pyramid. And when you examine in detail the mathematical structure of the Great Pyramid, again, you find, ah, and this is not known in Egyptology either. It's just, I, I did it simply because here's Shakespeare saying, there are 12 mathematical constants on the cover of the sonnets, and the identical same 12 mathematical constants are in the basic structure of the Great Pyramid. If you investigate now online and ask, how, are there constants in the Great Pyramid, you'll get, yeah, maybe pi and maybe the golden ratio. That's about it. But it's not that. I just went deeper and found that it's without cherry picking, you, know, you just connect the coordinates of their angles of the side slope and the corner slope and the base, etc. You find all these constants. And so Shakespeare was telling us, John Dee specifically, the mathematical genius behind this side of things, who was funneling it to the real Shakespeare, was telling us there is tremendous, powerful, ancient wisdom hidden in the Great Pyramid. Go look, go see, go find, check it out. And so I've, I've done four trips there. And in that time, I was able to corroborate a lot of the mathematics, uh, which was very, very helpful, not to mention it was a wonderful place to visit. But this fourth trip that I did, um, I was approached by um, a woman on, on, for part of the trip, we were on a, on a, on a, on a ship, a cruise ship going down the Nile. Um, and this, this woman approached me and said, I really, I love your work, et cetera, et cetera, and liked the shows that you've, you know, all the presentations you've given. I really want to help you get this story out. Um, what are you doing besides the, besides the, uh, the John Dee information and the Egyptology. And I mean, I hear you've written a musical because I'd said that during one of the shows. So here's the deal. I've been a musician all my life. And so when I first stumbled on the Shakespeare work, my first thought was to write it as a musical. I didn't think I was going to be finding codes or studying the history at all. But I got into it first for two years and I wrote, wrote a musical thinking, oh, it'd be a great subject matter. The mystery of why is there no paper trail for Shakespeare? So I started writing it that way. But then as I found real codes, I found that that was seeming, that was pulling me stronger and that was more important. I put the musical on the back burner, went into the codes. So there I was, like at this point, 17 and a half years later, mm. and she says, come to Santa Fe. Uh, I have a production company and I'd really like to help you in in getting the story out in any way, shape, or form you 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 want, you know. And I, I said, well, I'd love to get the musical on. So she works with her her production company is with a man named David Seidler, 
David Seidler won an Oscar for writing the screenplay of The King's Speech, a wonderful movie about King George VI stuttering, having to overcome his stutter just at the time that he became king when he didn't want to be king because his brother had abdicated and all of that, right? The history of the English monarchy there. And he has to give a speech because England is about to enter World War II. So it's a marvelous movie, and he won the Oscar for it. And he is her partner. And so I went to (laughs) Stratford, I went to Santa Fe, and and we started working on the the screenplay for a movie of my musical. And so that was the initial impetus for me going there, was that doors were opening. And at the same time, I got given the Gaia show. Hmm. So um, it's been a very, very busy year and a half, obviously, and wonderful. But we're in the middle of writing. That. Well, we were until the writer's strike just happened. It's still going, <laughs> right? Huh? It's still going, isn't it? It's a long strike. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, a movie is going to take a long time. That's something that usually takes about four or five years to, to pull off from scratch, right? But it's a movie of the musical that I've already written. And so I'm obviously recalibrating the musical to a certain extent because I wrote it, ooh, you know, 19 and 18 and 17 years ago. And now I know the full story so much bigger. So I'm going to be changing certain parts of it, rewriting. But yeah, so that's on the, on the table. And at the same time, um, the, the Gaia show was taking place and, and Santa Fe was nearer to Gaia for me. Uh, Gaia is at Boulder, Colorado. So it was just a drive up. So it was a really fortuitous meeting where all, all the stars were aligning and, um, so fingers crossed on that. Huh. So what were your, what were your thoughts on Egypt and, and from the details of the pyramid, just the experience of the whole thing? I mean, if you've been, been back four times, you must like it. Oh, it, it's, it's, it's magical in, in so many ways, but the, the key uh, attraction for me is of course the, the fact that this is, there is, there is an ancient knowledge that we are unaware of. We tend to teach and believe evolution is linear, and we've gone from apes to cavemen to smart us with our um, iPads and iPhones, right? And we know, Jason, you know, through the Vedic knowledge and scriptures that you have studied uh, in the, under the same teacher that I follow, Yogananda, that evolution is cyclical. Mm-hmm. And it goes through you, what are called yuga cycles. The Greeks called them the Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age, and Iron Age. And the Vedas call you know, Satya Yuga, Treta Yuga, Druwapara Yuga, which we're in now, and Kali Yuga. So in Kali Yuga, or the Dark Ages, we're at the lowest end of the cycle. So the cycle goes through, it's called precession of the equinox, 24,000 year cycle, during which time, at the height of the Golden Age, or Satya Yuga, it is said that we walk the planet like gods. We are 
in touch with our full mental and spiritual capacities, but we gradually lose that as we descend into the darker ages and we start losing our... And, and there's a reason, there's a scientific reason for this. It's just that our center of our galactic center, our place, our solar system, in relation to the galactic center of the Milky Way, is moving further and further and further away. And so we are less in touch with these electrical forces, magnetic forces, spiritual forces, waves, if you want to call it that, that are either raise consciousness or decrease consciousness. So in the Dark Ages, we are literally burning books, burning people, mm. you know, burning knowledge, right? Now, we're coming out of that, thank goodness, yes. Testament to that is the massive technological advancements that we've made in the last hundred years, obviously. But we still are not balanced enough to use that knowledge that we're gaining with a balanced viewpoint of, of spiritual recognition mm. that we're all brothers and sisters on this planet, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it's, we're still riddled with greed and power, hungry and the politics of it all. And it's going to take quite a while until that catches up. So the idea is that golden age, we're, we're it, we're in tune, we're there. And that's when we would have been able to build these monuments such hmm. as the Great Pyramid. Interesting, okay. Or, or because they are, we cannot build the Great Pyramid now today. Engineers will tell you that. that yeah, that, blo that blows my mind every time I hear it. What about the... the that, that we could not build the Great Pyramid with today's technology. No, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't do it. I mean, some of these stones are, you know, 200 tons. You go into the King's Chamber and it, they, are, they are like, they're polished like almost like glass and you can't put a razor blade between them they're butted up against each other we, we, we can't do this this is this is deodorized the hardest substance on the face of the planet and they and but the official story just like the shakespeare story there's an official shakespeare story that is rubbish <laughs> that is hiding a basic truth there's an official egyptological story that is complete rubbish that's hiding the real truth beneath it and here's shakespeare telling us to look at that so obviously, for me, that was the attraction. Oh, I've got to go see. Why is he? Why is he harping on about that? Well, it's just that that at a time, let's say in the highest ages, back thirteen thousand years from today backwards, um, it's quite possible that we built those pyramids ourselves. It's also very probable that we had extraterrestrial help because there are all kinds of signs pointing to that. Now, how does this lock into our knowledge of, about the Shakespeare story, right? Mm. Jason, you know this side of things just as deeply, possibly deeper than I do in terms of the, 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 back, the back story of John Dee. He's communing with angels, right? For a long, long period, right? Is it because we only the only words we had for them then was angels? What were they? You know, I, I I don't want to necessarily get lost in the weeds of his version of angels versus Edward Kelly's version of angels and and how he was caught up in that whole you know Kelly being rather fraudulent and probably being working for the you know for the wrong reasons and the dark side of his magic. But uh, in any case, it's clear that some of them were absolutely genuine. Otherwise. I could not have solved the Shakespeare mystery through the Enochian tables if if they if it was all rubbish. Hmm. I mean, it wouldn't have worked. So those angels, Uriel, Gabriel, Raphael, and uh, mm, Michael, and, and Michael, thank you, were presumably the real thing. 
But at the same time, he's also very dodgily having communication with uh, some very tricky entities. So here you've got the possibility that a lot of the information that, that was being brought to light then, and I'm talking now about Dee and Kelly, um, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know that side of it. I never got interested in going into the so-called magic with a K uh, that Alistair Crowley ended up following and all, all of that side of things because they're using a different version of the Enochian tables than you need to solve the Shakespeare thing. And just as always just so wonderful to me that Raphael comes to him on the side and I have to do this in a Monty Python voice. It's probably not what Raphael sounded like, but he goes, you know, yeah, uh, I want you to change it. Uh, going to shift these letters across here and uh, we'll call this a reform one. I'd stick it aside. Stump, don't tell anybody. That's for the Shakespeare thing. Put this one out. That's all right. I mean... <laughs> to, to, to be fair, the, the reformed one is the one that's brought in broad use. So, and, and that, that, yeah, and that was repeat, that, that cycle was actually repeated with every single part of, of the furniture that was transmitted. The first, there was a rough draft and then there was the finished one. It was for every, every piece. Okay, so everything that Alistair Crowley was doing was with, with the, the reformed table as well. as well. To the best of my knowledge, certainly that's in wide knowledge now. It, the reform table is, is, uh, but that said, I'm, I'm trying to remember there was a whole thing with when it was originally printed by Casaubon, it was printed backwards because of a printer's error. And so people were using a backwards version of it. So, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, messy signal around that one. Let's put it that way. I didn't know that either. And it's not interesting since yeah. all of the codes end up having to be read backwards in order for you to be able to decode them properly. Right, MOA, I just sway my life in Twelfth Night. It has to be turned backwards. He says, if this fall into thy hand, revolve. You revolve it, it becomes IAOM, which is the Freemason's most, most secret password. It's a pranayam technique. Again, so uh, that's on page 264 of the first folio, which has at the very top of it, it says, page 264, no man must know, no man must know, what follows, the numbers altered, no man must know. You look to the next page, and it's page 273. The numbers altered. It's as clear as day, he's telling us. And then it goes down into the whole, the whole scene of Malvolio being tricked by this letter that he gets, uh, where he thinks that Olivia is in love with him and she's left this secret letter, but it's really they're trying to trick him and make a fool out of him. And it says, M-O-A-I doth sway my life. And he starts trying to solve it. So he's trying to solve a code in the play that is never solved in the play. It never resolves itself. It, it, it just hangs in, in midair. But it's for us. It's not for the play. It's for us to solve. And, in, and then he literally says, Half a paragraph down, if this fall into thy hand, revolve. And he says it in italics to draw attention to it. So if you revolve M-O-A-I, you get I-A-O-M, and then you find out that I-A-O-M is the most secret password of the, of, of the Freemasons where they are given the letters one at a time over the course of their uh, apprenticeship. They're, but they're not given I until the very end. And when they're given I at the end, then they're told you have to read it backwards because it's a pranayam technique that is pronounced with these sounds. <laughs> Om. I will leave it at that. 
I can't say anymore. It's a, it's very close to a pranayama technique that is known in certain circles. Hmm. Right? So he's giving that away in Twelfth Night by, by giving it backwards. So anyway, thank you for that information. I didn't, I wasn't, Aware myself that it was the reform table that uh, that uh, that most of the magic people were using because I, I I just haven't gone there anyway. Mm. But the point is, it is genuine. It does work and it does solve the Shakespeare mystery. So I literally went to Egypt because it was this connection to he's telling us about ancient wisdom. He's telling us about mathematical constants that he should have no knowledge of. Mm. D is, and he's telling us to look at the Great Pyramid. And you look at the Great Pyramid, and the same things are there. And then the story of the Great Pyramid is that literally it could only really have been built during the Golden Ages, either you know thirteen thousand years ago, or even another entire yuga cycle back from that, another twenty-four thousand years back, which it, I, pro- I personally think is when when they were built, because there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, geologic proof that the, the Sphinx is way, way, way older than than it has been thought to be. But you see, the Egyptian, the Egyptologists are stuck in their paradigm. They have to say the Great Pyramid was built by Khufu, Pharaoh Khufu, because if you go further back than that, which is 2500 BC, we're dealing with cavemen and how could cavemen build, right? So we're stuck in, they're stuck in linear evolution. They can't get out of that. Therefore, they're stuck with, it has to be 2500 BC. Therefore, it cannot possibly be that it was built by anyone else, Khufu. Well, Khufu, we know his life cycle and from the, he, he would have lived about 20 years while it was being made. So they had to have built the pyramid in 20 years. And that means they had to quarry the stones from Aswan 500 miles away, bring them across the desert on tree logs. Yeah, yeah, let's do it by tree logs. And then cut them here, and each one being the size of a Cadillac car and between two and five tons, and those are the smallest ones, lay one of those down every two and a half minutes for 20 years and make them perfectly aligned to the cardinal points and not only that, it's not just a pile of six and a half million stones. They are, there are passageways and chambers inside and that are all perfectly constructed mm-hmm. to mathematical perfection. So the story is rubbish, but it, it, can, it can't be solved until they're willing to say, yeah, we're wrong about linear evolution. Oh, yeah, it could be done with cyclical evolution. The Greeks were right. The Vedas were right. So that's what John Dee is drawing our attention to. Mm-hmm. Look to the past. What was your what is your intuition about what the pyramids were? Because I know that I, I've seen them go in my lifetime from people saying they were tombs to possibly initiation chambers. Um, what is your take on what they were they used? Were they just to store the, this information or what do you think they were? I can only speculate. I don't pretend to be an expert on this side of things at all. Um but we do know that not a single pharaoh has, or mummy has ever, ever, ever been found in any pyramid. That's all complete. Again, it's complete rubbish. Kids are being taught that in school, and it's not true. They're not, they are not tombs. The, 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 the mummies were found in, uh, in the Valley of the Kings. They found Tutankhamun's tomb, etc., etc., but that's not a pyramid. 
All the pyramids, none ever has ever housed an, a, a mummy. So the, the, the chambers inside them and the sarcophagi that are in some of them, and particularly the sarcophagus that is inside the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid, you have to look deeper into what they must have had a function. I don't know enough about the science of that. Uh, Christopher Dunn has done a lot of really good work on the possibility that they were some form of energy device, which makes sense. But at the same time, there is the mystical side of the the energy frequencies themselves, which if you know if you're attuned to you, you know you're a meditator, and I'm sure a lot of your uh, audience are. Um, if you can still your mind and with techniques and go into a meditative state, you're, you're more attuned and more aware. I'm not saying it's any better. I'm not sort of you know saying, oh, look at us, we're meditators. I'm just saying, if 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 you can attune yourself, it's like it's like literally attuning to a certain wavelength with a with a tuning fork, as you can do with a piano with whatever. It becomes oh, you hit a, a pure vibration, and so. It's possible, of course, and some people are very, very, very psychically attuned to these deeper states of consciousness um, and have reported um, feeling the, the effects of being in the king's chamber. I can say for myself that, yes, I mean, I, I, I don't at all think of myself as being particularly a psychic sensitive at all, but... I, I, let me put it down to, to to the practicality of it. I do understand math, and I, in my four visits there, I had the ability, I had the uh, you know the, the opportunity, I should say, to be in the king's chamber alone for about an hour to meditate before they opened it up to the public uh, and all the tourists. And I received the intuition then that um, if you can imagine it, the if you can imagine like two pure cubes end to end, it's, they're not pure, they are higher than they are wide, but if you think of it, just to get your sense of it, it's like being inside a cube, you can imagine equal sides, equal height. Double that is twice as long, and then it's a little bit higher as well. And the ratios are actually, in pure integer ratios, they are 19 high, I'm not talking feet or meters or cubits, talking the nearest integer ratio that they all line up. It's 19 by 17 by 34. And that particular mathematical combination gives you a 3-4-5 triangle diagonally across from opposite corner to opposite corner. Not the flat wall or not the base, but it's, it's built in other words to hide a 3-4-5 triangle. If they built it to any other dimensions, it would not be there. So you know that sitting in there. That's not my discovery that you can find that online easily. You go, okay, so I'm sitting here and this, this is literally built to these ratios for a reason, 3-4-5. What's the only other thing that is in here? The sarcophagus that is sitting there. And it's like a, just a box and its lid is gone. It's empty, and we know from measuring it that the if you measure the overall volume of the box, it's a certain number, and if you measure the emptiness of the box, the the, the actual hollowed out part, it's it's half of that. So it's deliberately half of itself. It's let's say the the volume is two, <laughs> the actual solid stone part is one, and the air inside it is one. It's all very particularly specifically. Like, well, why? Why? Why is that? 
And then you enter the king's chamber through a corridor where you've got to crawl on your hands and knees to get there. And it's almost the same shape and size as the, not size, shape as as what would be needed to push this sarcophagus through, except that you can't. It's slightly higher than it would be if you left it vertically. But if you turn it on its side and put some KY jelly on it, I suppose, you could slide it through. It's almost precisely, oh, there. So here's the story. Oh, the sarcophagus must hold Khufu in all his regalia. That's his tomb. And we'll lay him in there with all his stuff on him and his beads and his whatever, his food for the afterlife, etc. Put the lid on it. And then we're going to bring him up to there. And then we're going to have to turn him on his side to slide him in. Poor guy. He's going to go. Right. And then we turn him back up. It's totally ludicrous. A gorilla sitting there with Legos could work this out. I mean, I've, I've seen images of that on YouTube of gorillas working, right? <laughs> Oh, Legos. I can put them together and figure out. So I was sitting there thinking of Legos, and I thought, the king's chamber is the size and dimensions for an absolute reason to tell you this beautiful aspect of the basis of Pythagorean theory. Three, four, three squared plus four squared equals five squared. The, the, the building block, that's, that's the whole basis of engineering. Right. So what's what, why is the sarcophagus there? And I just knew in meditation that if I turned it on its side, and slid it against the wall, the end wall, it would fit, I thought, precisely five horizontally and precisely six vertically, which if it was the right way up, it would not work because it would be too high and not wide enough. That was my intuition. I went back to my hotel and worked out the math and it was precise, absolutely precise. It's meant to fit five, like Legos, click, 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 six, six, six. So there would be 30 would be filling the wall. And then, so the, obviously your next thought is, if if that's set in stone, no pun intended, the length of the sarcophagus, how did they choose the length? Because, you know, I mean, why is it a certain length? It could, it could be anything. They could still stack them like that. I wonder how many of them fit precisely into the king's chamber. Ah. And I worked it out. And the and the, the the undeniable thing is, it ends up being this number that that is perhaps the most mysterious math constant of all time, called the fine structure constant, and it's one over one hundred and thirty-seven. And if anybody wants to look that up, I'm like, look up online one over one thirty-seven. What is that? Most mysterious constant. Richard Feynman talks about it. Uh, Wolfgang Pauli talks about it. Einstein talks about it. Everybody talks about it. This is mysterious. It's a non-dimensional number. It would be the one number that we could send out into space. And if it was picked up by intelligent life, they would know that we had reached a stage of understanding what it is. Hmm. The fine structure constant is one over 137. And it's the, it's the, it's the, in simplest possible terms, it's the probability that an electron, i.e. physicality, right? Deep, deep down, it's all electrons, that an electron will emit a photon of light. That it, in other words, it will turn back into its, its source. If you want to think of that as a spiritual metaphor, it's the probability that physicality can return back to source back to spirit, which is a beautiful way of thinking of it, but it's an actual number. And if it was not exactly that number, one over 137, we could not exist. Life in the universe could not exist. So all of this is known. 
And I and I solved it with the sarcophagus, and I realized, well, holy shit. You've got to, I mean, why, why did they build that to tell us the fine structure constant? How did they know it? Now, boys and girls, if you've got your iPhones ready with a calculator on it, put into your phone, into your calculator, 1 over 137, and see what it comes out as. Have you done it? What does it say? It says point oh. Oh, seven. <laughs> and a few other numbers. In fact, it says 0072992700729927007299. Out to infinity. It's 007 forwards and backwards. 7007 forwards and backwards, but literally brought down to three basic decimal places. It's John D's code number. Ta da! And he's telling us to look at that. There are more things in heaven and earth, a ratio than I dreamed of in your philosophy. That's what fascinates me about it. That's what took me to Egypt. That's why it's like, oh my God, he's telling us about ancient knowledge that we do not know today. And he's saying, wake up, wake up, because this is deep stuff. You mentioned that you were also extending towards the King James Bible and finding even more stuff there. <laughs> Which I'm very curious well, about. Yeah. You want to leave that hanging there like that? I was I was hoping for a tiny bit of a pause and then Oh, I'm sorry, me. I don't want to steal your dramatic uh pause. I thought you were you were uh that was your No, just get this. Go ahead. No. That is the denouement, but what did I tell you the the actual ratios of the king of the king's chamber are? Nineteen by 17, by 34, and then what's called the false door at the west side of every every chamber wherein there's the idea that um, the a deceased would pass through into the duat, which is interestingly not the case, but there are several in, in the later, uh, in, in, in the Valley of the Kings chambers, there, there, there are certain... Um, rooms, shall we say, that have what's called a false door. And they measure the, the two sides and the top. They don't measure the, the bottom. So if you take two sides of 19 and the top of 17, that gives you 55. So the true, the, the basically you've got a king's chamber that is, is done with by 17, by 19, by 34, by 55. What are the grids that you have to put, the gravestone and the Sonnet's dedication and the monument into to solve the Shakespeare mystery. You put the grave into 17, you put the sonnet's dedication into 19, you put the monument into 34 and a 55. And they each give you hidden triple towers symbolism with the word de Vere as an inverted tower cross balanced against them. I was mystified by that as to why they chose 17 and 19 and 55 for Years and years and years. I thought, well, I don't know. I don't know. He just chose those. I, I put them into various grids until I found the triple tower and the inverted devere, right? And then I found out, oh, the king's chamber is those numbers. Okay, now we can move on. Okay. <laughs> so that's a lot to, lot to digest. Yeah. Yeah. So the big question that has hung in the air for, oh, how long? You know, if, if the, a long time, people have been wondering, 
you know, why would King James, I mean, King James ascends to the throne, right, 1603, when Elizabeth passes. And he obviously wants to make his mark, and his legacy is going to be this King James Bible, right? I mean, that's his big deal. That's his, that's his big hit movie. And so he, he orders it done in 1604, and it finally gets done, gets printed, published in 1611. And people have thought for a long time, there's one thing they spot, and it's in, in um, Psalm 46, the 46th word from the beginning is shake, and the 46th word from the end is spear in Psalm 46. So people have sort of riffed on that and thought, well, that's kind of, you know, that, uh, that must be a code to say Shakespeare has something to do with the, with the translation of the King James Bible. Hmm. And why not? I mean, why would the king not call on the greatest writer right there in his own backyard? I mean, he's there. The, the official story is he, he, he had it done by 54 clerics, a whole mishmash of, of, you know, you from this church and you from that church and you from this and this archbishop here and this vicar here. And, and then none of them are writers and they'll all get together and they'll cobble this thing together and argue over who should do what and which, which part. Hmm. You know, and it ends up being not sounding like that at all. The beauty of it, the King James Bible, um, is obviously the the biggest selling Bible of all time, over two and a half billion copies of that, but of the King James in print, hmm. two and a half billion. Um, and its popularity is partly due to the fact that it is, a, it reads like it's one cohesive poetic voice. Yeah, and it's the only thing that I, I can think of that is, sounds like Shakespeare or is comparable to Shakespeare in literary quality and every other version of the Bible that's been done since, even with the most modern scholarship and things like that, is nowhere near as, as uh, I wouldn't say good. It's the, the King James Bible actually has spiritual potency behind it if you read it out loud. And the other ones are like, you know, listening to cable television or something like that. That's what, that's the point I'm making is that it's, it's, it, it is that popular because of the unheard, the unseen, it's just there. It's like reading any saint's words, isn't it? You pick up Yogananda's books and open it anywhere and it, it speaks to you. And it's, it, every paragraph is deeply meaningful. And yes, it's the same with the King James Bible and it's the same with Shakespeare's works. And so it, it made sense that he must have had something to do with it just for the pure convenience of him being there. Uh, uh, but that's not the official story. So I would like, yes, it's easier to, I mean, um, it's easier to understand this if you go to episode five on the Gaia series, because it, it, it's easier to follow with a lot of graphics, but I'll, I will describe it and then urge you to just, just go see it because it's, it's something I'm very, very proud of because it, it really is a slam dunk comprehension that makes it virtually impossible that, that, that Shakespeare did not, was not the person behind this. So that one little clue, the, the, the Psalm 46 and the 46 word from the beginning, 46 word from the end, is just a little, you know, breadcrumb in the forest. But when you go much, much, much deeper, let's look at um, the way I, the way that it's easiest to describe is that 
in um, all the works of Shakespeare, we've got 1593, we first hear of him in a publication called Venus and Adonis. That's the first time we ever see the name William Shakespeare in print, and it's dedicated to Henry Rosely. Next comes the sonnets in 1609. Next and last comes the first folio that's published in 1623, which is all his plays. Perhaps not all, 36 of his plays. He probably wrote two or three others. So that's the main bulk of his work is that poems, he wrote six epic length poems, of which Venus and Adonis was the first. He wrote 154 sonnets called just Shakespeare's sonnets, and that's in 1609. Now, somewhere in the middle between 1609 and 1623, in 1611, King James Bible comes out. So I show that uh, uh, he's using a specific system that can be replicated so that you un can understand the validity of the codes. And I've called it the Alpha Omega system because it boils down to this. He will give a clue always at the very beginning, that is the very first page of, of a piece of work. He will give a mirror image clue at the very last page of that work. And he'll give a clue in the very center of that work. Uh, his system, which is replicatable as a way of, of, of proving the validity of everything he's doing, you know, is always a clue on the, ver the very first page, a clue in the very last page, and a clue in the very, very center. So I'll try to make this as comprehensible as possible without the pictures, but go to the Gaia episode five and, and see it with all the graphics, which is easier to follow. But in basically, start with a quick recap of what we already know in the sonnets. The first page of the sonnet hides the geometry that reveals the precise knowledge of the then unknown math constants. The mathematical relationship between the world's three major measurement systems is here as the foot, the cubic meter embedded in the sonnets as well as everything else. So that's on the first page. The very last page of the sonnets reveals it's, uh, there's a, a poem tacked on at the end called A Lover's Complaint. And the last two lines of A Lover's Complaint uh, when put into an anagram and it's just, it's just simply the, the very last line and then, uh, and then the word finis to say it's finished. And it's a perfect anagram of finis is Latin for the end, of course. The anagram is infine. That's another way of saying finished in the end in Latin. Infine, it says print conceals. I am Edward de Vere. It's a perfect anagram. The very last sonnet itself. This, by that I prove, love's fire, he's water, water cools not love. You put that into with finis into an anagram, and it says, Alterstone finally solves WW, that's his signature that he puts together for the two William Shakespeare's, Evere. Um, it's crystal clear. So that's the very beginning and the very end. Now, going to, I'm going to skip forward here to just the center of it. When you go to the center of the sonnets, the very center is the page 
40. There's 80 pages in the science. So the, the very center is 40 pages and then 40 pages on the right, which is Edward de Vere's code number. De Vere's code number was 40. And, and, and there's, a, there's a, something called a catchword that the printers used in those days uh, so that they knew how to collate the pages together properly. So if the next word on the next page was whatever, you know, fish, they'd put the word fish down at the bottom of the previous page as an, ad an added thing, not as part of the sonnet, not as part of the text, but it would have to say that so that you could, the printers would go, oh, that's what hooks up to that. Yes. And all of them have that. It's called the catchword. So the catchword at the bottom of the middle of the sonnets is I was. And at the top of the next page, I was. And so that is the name of God in past tense. I was what I was. The name of God that he uses throughout the codes is I am, that I am. That's central to all the codes. And in the very center, same place of the folio, then he has Latin word for I will be what I will be. So he's put the name of God at the very center of the sonnets, the very center page of the first folio. Now, if you look at the beginning of the first folio and the very end of the first folio, you've got that picture of that we've all seen of this ludicrous guy with a head that's way too big and a jacket that is half of a front and half of a back, and he's got two right eyes. The whole thing is a coded structure. But he's got three lines going down this jacket because it's half of the front and half of the back. And the lines are going straight down, straight down, and a curve like a letter C. So there's an I and an I and a C. And in pure, simple gematria, where I is the ninth letter and C is the third letter, the jacket itself is saying 993. Now, if you go to the very last page of the first folio, you find it's page 993. It shouldn't be, though. The previous page, again, you know, the numbers altered. The wrong page before it is 398. It goes from 398 to 993. Obviously, it should be 399. So it should go from 398 to 399, but it's 993. It's pure mirror imaging, what's on the very first page of the folio and very last page of the folio. And you go to the middle and it's the name of God. I will be what I will be matching. I was what I was in the science and I am that I am. The absolute center, then if you go to the Venus and Adonis, the very first thing that was ever published, the absolute center of it, the entire structure, there are, each verse in it is six lines. And the, the, so you get, you place them all, all of the verses, and the absolute center verse is verse 100. And there are 594 lines to the left of it and 594 lines to the right of it, which makes no sense right now. But we look back at the first folio where I said it went from 398 to 993 instead of 399. The jump from 399 to 993 is 594. So he's jumped by 594 at the very end of the folio. And in the, in Venus and Adonis, he's got 594 lines and 594 lines balanced against a middle 100th verse. In the, then you go back to the sonnets and you say, I wonder if he's done 594, 594 in the sonnets. 
you count the number of the sonnets that have the word verse in them. Verse, because he's talking lines, verses, chapters, and numbers. So numbers in the folio, 594, 594, Venus and Adonis, 594 lines, 594 lines in the sonnets. The number, the number of sonnets that contain the word verse is split right down the middle, as, and they add up, adding, adding up the numbers of the sonnets that contain the word verse. You've got 594 on the left and 594 on the right. So then you go, okay, what on earth is going on here? Let's go to the King James Bible. The absolute center of the King James Bible is Psalm 117. It's the shortest verse in the entire Bible, just two verses. The shortest, uh, sorry, technically it's the first shortest chapter in the entire Bible, and it's just two verses. To the left of that absolute center of the Bible, 594 chapters. To the right of that absolute center of the Bible, 594 chapters. So he's done what is already there is that's cast in stone. That's the way the Hebrew version and the modern version were put together. And there's 594 and 594 and the center is the shortest chapter in the whole Bible. And he's done the same thing in the first folio. And he's done the same thing in sonnets. And he's done the same thing in Venus and Adonis, the first thing that he ever published. And it goes on and on and on, but that's a brief overcap of it. Hmm. It's literally... It's undeniable that he wrote Venus and Adonis in 1593, 18 years before King James Bible comes out, and yet it was patterned on what the King James Bible would be. Hmm. The first folio then is echoing it 12 years after, in 1623, after, after 1611, and the sonnets was echoing it two years before. I mean, it's it's a slam dunk. There are many, many other aspects to it. And it's easy. I've skipped over a, a bunch because you, it really requires the pictures. But, well, definitely. You know, you, uh, something like that. Sorry, what? Oh, well, all the more reason for people to watch the show. Yes, please do. So just go to the... And remember, you can get a link. I mean, don't just go looking up Gaia. If you go to my website... Uh, there's a button there. Just click on that to see the Gaia show. You'll be able to watch it for free for seven days free uh, and watch Jason's stuff and watch a whole bunch of other stuff as well because there's a ton of really, really good stuff on there. It's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, why don't you give people your, your website one more time? Yeah. To be or not to be. To be or not to be dot org. And that's it. All right. Any uh, so any any new big trips planned or anything else out on the horizon? Yeah, I'm going to England. I'm going to Stratford for the first time in years and years. I I'm revisiting it in uh, about a, a month and a half's time because I've uh, got some other clues that I want to look at. I see. Well, <laughs> I want to see actually physically. <laughs> I guess we shouldn't give it away then. <laughs> this, yeah. this this would all make an excellent movie at some point i think particularly the a heist movie yeah well hopefully we get the the, the musical movie done 
which is being written with David Seidler, as I said. Um, and, uh, but, yeah. All right. I, I, like to see a, a heist movie that would be cool <laughs> is your your show's on Gaia now already like uh, do they they put the whole thing up yeah. already okay yeah the whole thing is up all seven episodes are there you can binge watch them if you want excellent <laughs> all right yeah. well thank you for for being on again this was a this is a great conversation and thank you for sharing all of that that's a lot to a lot to digest but there's some there's some serious information in there so um and i'm sure everything else will be revealed in the show yeah, check it out. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. All the best. All right, that brings us to the end of our enlightening conversation with Alan Green. A huge thank you to Alan for sharing his profound insights and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Before we sign off, don't forget to check out the Magic of Tarot course at magic.me. Whether you're a beginner or a seasoned practitioner, this course promises to enrich your practice and ignite your spiritual evolution. Visit tarot.magic.me to start your journey today. That's tarot.magic.me, T-A-R-O-T dot M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Okay, I will see you in class. Thank you for joining us and... Lots of love. See you soon.